0: And so the the first time that I took LSD, I started feeling things. So what we're talking about is a new field of medicine called psychedelic therapy. It will only be legal under supervision in clinic settings where people who have been specially trained in the therapy that was used to get them approved.
1: Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at Patreon.com/slash/TheDepressionFiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/TheDepressionFiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited tonight. We have... Uh, Dr. Rick Doblin on the line here. Dr. Doblin is the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS. He received his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana and his master's thesis on a survey of oncologists about smoked marijuana versus the oral THC pill in nausea control for cancer patients. His undergraduate thesis at New College of Florida was a 25-year follow-up to the classic Good Friday experiment, which evaluated the potential of psychedelic drugs to catalyze religious experiences. He also conducted a 34-year follow-up study to Timothy Leary's Concord Prison Experiment. Rick studied with Dr. Stanislav Groff and was among the first to be certified as a holotropic breathwork practitioner. His professional goal is to help develop legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people, and eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. He founded MAPS in nineteen eighty-six and currently resides in Boston with his wife, dog, and empty rooms from three children, one of whom is still in college and two who have graduated. Rick, welcome to the show.
0: Well, wow, thank you, Al, for having me.
1: Yeah, I am I'm really excited. You know, you have just been so uh relevant in the whole idea of psychedelic research. For mental illnesses and and addictions and other purposes, you have been so instrumental in the fight to get them to become legalized for research and so forth that um, it's amazing. And I'm really excited to hear your story tonight. I know you know the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about it is one of the things that has made me passionate about finding people like you to interview them is that it seems to me, and maybe you know about this and maybe not, but it seems like the research on antidepressants is at a standstill or nothing is, is doing from them. And I know there's actually very little research about the efficacy, uh, long-term efficacy of antidepressants and, and what a long shot and a gamble they are when you have to take a pill and wait you know, four to six weeks for to see if there's any impact, and if there's not you change the med and try again, and then you try again. And we're talking about people who may be suicidal or can't get out of bed who are going through this process. So I'm wondering if you do happen to know, is it true? It just seems to me that antidepressants, like nobody's even looking at them anymore.
0: I I think that is true. And one of the reasons is that the big pharma has basically turned away from what they call CNS or central nervous system drugs. And the drugs that they did invent, the SSRIs and other antidepressants are now mostly off patent. So they're not big um, money makers for pharma because there's generic alternatives to a lot of them. And it's very complicated to try to find drugs that really help with mental illness. And at the same time, there's a general recognition that the medicines that we do have address symptoms but they don't really address the core problem they're palliative rather than curative and at the same time they have side effects that are important and there's a lot of people who don't find any relief from them at all so there's a clear need for new antidepressants new drugs for anxiety for ptsd and big pharma has mostly um, abandoned the whole issue so a lot of times people say to us Uh, You're trying to make MDMA into a medicine for PTSD. Other people are trying to make psilocybin into a medicine for depression, for either treatment-resistant depression or major depressive disorder. Are you seeing pharma trying to be um, obstructionist for what you're doing? And we don't see that at all. And the most important development that's happened in psychiatry over the last 20 years or more has been the development of ketamine for depression.
1: Right, which was recently, not that long ago, approved by the FDA for the nasal implemented uh, spray, right? Yeah, for Bravado. Right, right. S ketamine. Yeah. So, which, which means the, the pharmas took a chemical, ketamine, and essentially used a derivative of it and is able to get it uh, approved by the FDA. Is that yeah, accurate?
0: That's, well, sort of. So every chemical, uh, LSD, MDMA, every chemical is got um, what are called isomers, and they're like mirror images of each other, and they're usually in 50-50 percentages, and they're which way they crystallize, like a right hand or a left hand, and those are isomers, and the racemic mixture is with both of the isomers. So ketamine as a medicine for anesthesia has been around since the 60s. It's considered one of the world's essential medicines by the World Health Organization. It's very inexpensive because it is also generic. And so what Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company did, is that they worked with S-ketamine, which is one of the isomers of ketamine, which they could patent for depression and they made that into a medicine and because they don't understand anything about psychotherapy, they chose to make it a medicine by itself as a pharmacological agent and then what they were able to do is start uh, getting approval and the advantage from S-ketamine is that it has an immediate effect so when you talked about SSRIs it can take four weeks or so to see if they work and if not you switch to another medicine there's more rapid response to esketamine but in practice what's happened is that a lot of the practitioners who are offering esketamine have realized not all of them but a lot of them have realized that it works better when you add therapy to it right at least preparation and integration, and then you get better outcomes. Ketamine tends to fade in its effect, so the normal course of treatment now is six ketamine sessions over a period of a couple weeks or a month, and that way, without therapy, from the pharmaceutical company's perspective, they'll sell more ketamine because even that sometimes doesn't work, but when you add more therapy to it, it works better, it works longer, and at the same time, you're paying more money to the therapist, but you don't need as much ketamine. And those people that are providing this with therapy have stopped buying as ketamine because what the pharma has been able to do, Johnson & Johnson, is take a drug that's a dollar or two and turn it into a drug that's $500.
1: Right.
0: So. Therapists are not wanting to buy Spravato. Spravato has an advantage in that it is a nasal spray. You're still supposed to take it under supervision. But the research demonstrates that ketamine that's either IV or intramuscular seems to work better than the Spravato, the spray. Right. So those uh, psychiatrists, therapists, a lot of anesthesiologists are actually using ketamine depression, but they also don't understand therapy. So Yeah,
1: it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I did have an interview uh, on the depression files earlier with a doctor who administers ketamine infusions, Mm -hmm. and he is an ER doc, and I asked him that very question. I had heard that many anesthesiologists administer ketamine intravenously to um, medicate for depression, and that was my very question. Like They aren't even trained around psychology, mental illnesses, and it just doesn't seem like the best model. And he did say, you know, and I don't know if he actually has therapists working alongside of him, but he did agree that it's best as a team, right? So at least the, and his, him being an ER doc, he believes that he has had a lot of experience in his past, including when he was a student dealing with ketamine and dealing with mental illnesses through the ER more so than anesthesiologists, but that's a, I've always wondered about that as well. And it's interesting too, because even intravenously people need repeats, right? It's not like one or two sessions and you're done. Oftentimes six months later, it sounds like, or a year later, somebody may need another round of ketamine, which I think is different, which we'll get into, but thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And that, that has kind of opened up some doors to other methods of treating depression that are, unre- it's like a whole new classification of drug ad- working in a different way, correct?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, as a brief comment that um, we received um, five and a half, uh, about $5.5 million dollars worth of Bitcoins. Um, this is a couple of years ago. And it was from somebody who had borderline personality and depression, and he went for a ketamine session. And during the Ketamine he had a vision and the vision was that the way for him to get out of his problems was to help other people and He wanted to talk about it to the people that gave him the ketamine and they said We're not therapists for we don't care what your experience is. It's all about the pharmacological effects of the ketamine and Whatever content you have doesn't really matter and and this fellow felt that that was um, very frustrating and he thought they were wrong about that and afterwards the ketamine vision stayed with him and he realized he was an early bitcoin investor at the time that was um, the peak of the bitcoin price so he decided to give away um, 88 million dollars of bitcoins which he did in a couple months but the reason he gave us so much of it was that he liked the fact that we were therapy plus mdma
1: right
0: that it was ketamine plus therapy but most people are um You know, they're starting to come to realize that. But but others, anesthesiologists, others have used it as a sort of money mill to just people ketamine and they don't want to talk about the the content. Right. That really doesn't work as well. And it doesn't last as long as you said. And that's where psychedelics, either psilocybin or MDMA or LSD or um, other drugs, other psychedelics seem to be more helpful for depression. Right. Right.
1: So I want to, you know, I probably should have done this right off the bat, but just to hear a little bit about you, the, the personal side of you, I understand you grew up in Chicago, is that correct?
0: Yeah, well, I was uh, born in Oak Park, well, Michael Reese Hospital um, in Chicago, then I lived at Oak Park the last couple of years, then I lived in Skokie, um, and then that's where I thought the whole world was Jewish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, which is there. funny
1: because guess where I was born? I was born in Skokie Valley Hospital. In Skokie, oh my Illinois, God.
0: that's where my dad worked. <laughs> uh, my dad's a doctor. He's no longer alive, but he was a doctor there. And um, yeah, and then we moved from Skokie to Winnetka.
1: Okay. The other, the other story you, the other story I heard you share at one point, which was really funny to me, was one. Of, I think it was your grandfather or even a great grandfather who was in the rag business. You said and was literally selling rags. I believe, right? That's what I got out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Well, it was the classic rags to riches story, because he started with rags. And there's the family. He he moved. He was um, from uh, from Russia and uh, came to America in 1880. Around then, with my um, great grandmother, and they started out as um, selling rags. And the story, family story, was is that he would sometimes freeze on his
1: horse. Oh my goodness!
0: And and that it would be very cold, and he would be you know this horse driven carriage collecting people's rags, and then he would end up um, having to have his uh, my great-grandmother come out with some hot water to unfreeze him from the horse. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. And then he'd and, and, walk away with blisters from the burning water.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, And then he eventually built a big paper company. Okay. And okay. then in, when he was in his 60s, in the 1920s, um, he moved to Palestine. Oh, wow. So, to Piner. And, and actually, his mother, my great-great-grandmother, um, moved to Palestine in 1904, and her purpose of doing that was that she wanted to die and be buried on the Mount of Olives, wow. which is right outside the gates of Jerusalem that the Messiah is supposed to come out of. And so if you're on the Mount of Olives, you know, that's where you get resurrected first. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. So, wow. so then, um, she died and then, and my great grandparents with my grandmother and, and their two other kids moved there in 19, um, 24 and they built a house. That's now a historical site, um, on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv. Oh my goodness. And it's, um, got a skyscraper in the backyard and a skyscraper to the side. <laughs> and they had the, uh, the family sold the house in the forties. Uh, I, I learned a bunch of interesting stuff that the, uh, Italians bombed Tel Aviv in World War Two, and they killed about 135 people. And there was a mass exodus from uh, leaving Tel Aviv and that's when my family left. Wow. Um, and then my family started coming back again in 48 to fight in the war there. And then um, I've had relatives ever since that have um, been there.
1: That's awesome. Have you seen the property in Tel Aviv? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've been raised to... Um, make a contribution
0: to Israel. And it turns out that I didn't want to move there, but I finally realized I could bring MDMA research and marijuana research to Israel and that that would be my contribution. And it turns out that the house is now owned by a Canadian foundation called the Hessig Foundation. And it's for what they call lone soldiers. So a lot of um, young Jews will go to Israel to serve in the army, but don't have any family there. Okay. And so this uh, foundation, the Hesek Foundation, is for lone soldiers and they they've got this house and they've renovated it and they've built some stories underneath, including this uh, basement that has a movie theater. Wow. And so they tell the story of our family as part of the history of the house. And they've kept in touch with my Israeli relatives. So I've met the people that are in the foundation and we go there and visit. But I knew they had this movie theater. And so we had the chance to train a bunch of Israeli therapists in MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. And part of the training that we do is we watch videotapes of actual therapy sessions. Okay. Comment on it. Right. So I asked the people in the house, could we move, could I use their basement for a couple days with the movie theater to show these um, therapy movies? And they said yes. So I actually got to to work in the Underneath my great-grandparents' house. That is... MDMA training of Israeli therapists.
1: That is it, unbelievable. That is so cool. It was, it was so, very... So scary. I'm glad, I'm really glad we got to hear that story. Because that's that's really fascinating. And so cool that you got to do work there. Uh, yeah. Work that you're so passionate about. And in your relative's basement. That is so cool. Yeah. The funny little connection I was planning to make... Was to share with you, like, not only was I born in Skokie, Illinois, but my dad always described his business. And this was what uh, what confused me when you shared that your great-grandfather was in the rag business. My dad always said he was in the rag business, but he was a clothing salesman.
0: Ah, ah, okay. And,
1: and I didn't know if it was kind of the Jewish way of describing being in the clothing business or just my dad's way. But he always would tell people he was in the rag business. But really, it was, <laughs> you know, nice clothes. He sold wholesale to stores so he would travel in a mobile home and he would show up in little stores and the buyer would come out and sit on the couch and that was his showroom when he was on the road other than going to other shows and here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis um, there were shows too but so he yeah, is was funny so when you said rag business at first I was thinking clothing but it was literally <laughs> rags
0: it was literally rags yeah then, that's, that's awesome and then paper
1: <laughs> so um <laughs> So when you were growing up in Chicago area, were you as a kid involved or interested in drugs? Were drugs around the house? Were your parents big drinkers? What was that like growing up?
0: No, the opposite actually. So um, my parents did not drink. Um, my father was a pediatrician and those were the days of house calls. And he would make house calls in the middle of the night all the time and make him sleepy. And so he was a coffee drinker and, but I felt that he was addicted to coffee. He would, you know, on the weekends and stuff, he would drink like 10, 12 or more cups of coffee. And so I decided that I didn't ever want to drink coffee. I've never had a cup of coffee in my whole life.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: I have had coffee, ice cream,
1: but, okay. uh,
0: but not uh, coffee. And they were also, my dad, you know, a, as a doctor, you get all of these um, medicines, from a detail man from pharmaceutical company. So we had a big drawer of all these medicines. And my dad's attitude was don't take any of them, you know, just, you know, I mean, he believed in medicines occasionally. Uh, He believed in vaccines, but most of the time he felt like um, you could heal on your own. And so we had this attitude, like, be careful of these drugs. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke. one of my life's failures was I never got him to smoke marijuana, <laughs> uh, enjoy it. But I, I just grew up also at a time of this um, miseducation that people got during the 60s about psychedelics. So I actually believed that if you took LSD six or seven times, you were certifiably insane. Right. And yeah. I believe that if you took LSD a bunch of times, it would hurt your chromosomes and you would have deformed babies. Right. And I believed that um, these were escapist tools for escapism. I, I believe that they were called hallucinogens. Um, we use the word psychedelics, which means mind manifesting. Yeah. But hallucinogens kind of implies that you're, it's not real, it's distorted. So I really was very much um, not involved in drugs of any sort. And I never drank alcohol either, even when my friends did. But what really started turning me around was um, I was very interested in studying the other. And at that time, it was Russia. So I I, and my great grandparents, um, as I said, um, had come from Russia, right? So I took Russian in high school. And um, so I went to New Trier High School. We had Russian And in my senior year, one of my friends in my Russian class um, handed me a book to read. I I loved reading books. I was always reading books. I was too shy to talk to girls, but I loved to read books. And I I read this book and I thought, this is phenomenal. And I gave it back to my friend and he said, "Um, yeah, this is a great book, one of the best I've ever read. And I don't know if you realize this, but the author wrote part of it while he was under the influence of LSD. (laughs) Wow. And I'm like, that's impossible. Nothing good comes from LSD. How how could that be possible? Um, And I checked it out and it turns out he was right. And the book was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey.
1: Wow, I didn't realize that.
0: He did write some of it while he was under the influence of LSD. So that is what really opened my mind. As a senior in high school, um, I was also taking a class in Jung, um, Jungian psychology. And for the entire semester, we read the book Moby Dick from a Jungian perspective. And that started getting me involved in the unconscious, trying to think about that. And and I started opening my mind to LSD.
1: At this point, had you even smoked marijuana?
0: Um, No, no.
1: Okay, so nothing. And you're a senior in high school, never touched drugs or drank.
0: Well, here's another part of it, which is uh, I'm uh, embarrassed to say this now in a way, but (laughs) Um, my parents had a house built by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright's. OK, this wow. incredible, beautiful house. And the perimeter of it was all um, sliding glass doors and, you know, occasional wood or brick for bathrooms and stuff. But but it was very much the inner and outer transition. And so all of our bedrooms had sliding glass doors. And my bedroom with my brother was on the opposite side of the house as my parents bedroom. And what that meant is that I could sneak out whenever I wanted, and they would never know. Right. And what I'm embarrassed about is I never did it. <laughs>
1: that is really funny. Uh, I've, yep. You know, my funny story that's a little embarrassing, too, is I snuck out, but I got permission from my parents to sneak out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's nice. Huh?
1: <laughs> so I don't know if I could ever say I really snuck out. Wow, so and were you just were those glass sliding doors just looking into nature, it sounds like? Yeah, yeah. It was just of, amazing. Yeah,
0: there was a lot of uh, plantings around it. So it was private. It was uh-huh. very it was just incredibly private and, and, and very inspirational. And so you one, said
1: you were a shy kid. Did you did you have many friends?
0: Um, I had guy friends. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I, I was able to talk to guys, but I just couldn't talk to girls. Gotcha. And, um and it was really yeah. So, so then I, when I went to college, everything changed. That's when I really started doing more psychedelics or starting to do psychedelics. And
1: Well, so, so you have just gone from reading a book where you learned a guy wrote part of the book under the influence. You were studying some psychology that was really interesting to you. Now you're in college, and what makes you decide, like, do you remember the first time you took acid, what that, what that was like?
0: I definitely do. And,
1: and who you were with and how it evolved?
0: I do. I do. So, um, but I'll say a tiny bit about the college. Sure. So yeah, yeah. I went to a new college, which is in Sarasota, Florida, and it's now the honors college of the state of Florida. But when I went to it, it was a private school. It had just started. The first class was 1965 and it had a interesting educational philosophy, which was that the most important thing is the student's curiosity. Wow. And Nothing should get in the way of the student's curiosity. So there was no required. If you wanted to major, you had to do a certain number of classes in that major. Yeah. But you didn't have any distribution requirements. You know, you could just do general studies. How did you even find out about that college from Chicago? Well, I did really well on the national merit scores, and they mailed me something in the mail. <laughs> okay. Um, the other thing is that there were no grades. Wow. It was all written evaluations, and uh-huh. it was a heavy emphasis on independent study, tutorials, small groups. Um, it was a small school of only about 350 people. Wow. Really but, small. Yeah, really. But my high school was like- Oh,
1: um, Trier is huge, right? 3,
0: 800 people. How many? 3,800 people <laughs> oh in my, my school. I mean, there was 880 people in my graduating class. Oh, my God. Or 3,600 people, something like that. So, yeah, it was really big. So- I just loved the philosophy of this school, and I decided to go there. And then once I got there, there was two things that they did not put in their brochure that I didn't see when I went there with my dad to check out the school physically. <laughs> okay. So one of them was that they had a tradition of all-night dance parties fueled by psychedelics going till sunrise. You are
1: kidding
0: No, and the school was, a portion of it was designed by I.M. Pei, this uh, really famous architect. And um, he designed the dorms and the classrooms, but there was a palm court in the center of a bunch of these dorms. And that's where these parties were. So it was just this incredible experience. And the campus police, because it was a private school, they said their job was to protect the students from the real police. Oh, my goodness. Okay, now the other thing that I did not know and for which I'm extremely grateful, um, is that um, there was also a teacher who taught Jung, who'd actually studied with Carl Jung. Wow. Her name was Marian Hoppen, and um, her husband was uh, quite wealthy, and the school was new and didn't have a lot of facilities, so they donated an Olympic-sized swimming pool with uh, big decks all around it and fenced in, this, this incredible spot in Florida. And somehow or other, it had evolved into a nudist colony. Oh,
1: my goodness. For
0: students, for faculty, you know. Um, and it was optional. You know, you could wear clothes. You could not. But, you know, for me, who was so shy, I could barely talk to a girl. Now I <laughs> like hang out with all these naked girls. Um, I, and... In addition to that, it it felt are like... you
1: are you explaining right now? did you jump ahead and you're talking about your first trip on LSD, or this is actually no, this is yeah. real?
0: Oh, yes, this is real. <laughs> and, and they this was at a time when LSD was sold in um larger doses. It was more like two hundred and fifty micrograms was a standard dose, which, is what you would call an existential experience, where there's periods of hours where it's hard to talk. Right. You know, you gotta lie down. (laughs) Um, Things like, so there was this focus, this interest on deep explorations of one's consciousness. A lot of people studying spirituality, meditation, um, as well as this kind of celebratory recreational use And so it felt like the school was an oasis of sanity in a crazy world. Right. I was also a a draft resistor for Vietnam and planning to, I'd studied a lot of nonviolent resistance, um, Gandhi and Tolstoy and, Thoreau, and I studied a lot of um, theories about nonviolence. And so I was, um, I didn't register for the draft and was preparing to go to jail. So- I get to this. Uh, I didn't actually go to jail. Somehow or other, nothing ever happened. I never sent in the postcard and nothing ever happened wow, at all. Really? Yeah. And I later learned about 60,000 people um, never registered and nothing happened because enough people were showing up at the draft boards that they, you know, met their quotas. Right. So it was in this environment, though, that I really decided that I would start to experiment with LSD.
1: That, that's amazing in itself, just like those two pieces you shared that you weren't even aware of coming from somebody who all of a sudden was having this passion their senior year of high school around the psychedelics and uh, and psychology. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. And, and so my first experience, I was not very emotional. I think that was one of the parts that made it hard for me to talk to girls, that I was very cognitive, um, very, I've read books all the time, I, you know, studied well did good on tests, but, but I really didn't have much in the way of emotions. And so the the first time that I took LSD, um, I started feeling things. Now some of it was a little bit fearful or anxious, like I'm losing control and things. but. It just brought emotions closer to the surface, and I felt like finally I was um, becoming a more balanced person. The what, other-
1: what was this like? The environment? Were you at one of those all-night parties? Were you with friends? What was the the setting? No,
0: no, I, I did it on a Saturday where there was no classes. I did it during the day, and, alone. Uh, uh, well, with with a couple friends. Okay. All right. And, and then we were you know walking around outside and exploring what was going on. And, um, and I had these senses that, um, you know, that amount of LSD is kind of ego dissolving and you're processing information in a different way. You know, our mind often acts as a reducing valve and that you focus on what you need to focus on for a variety of needs or interests. But. You tune out a lot of stuff, which is really good for when you want to get stuff done. And, and we all know that you can you know, be in a crowded room, but if you're interested in something, you focus on what you need to focus on and you don't hear all the right. extraneous noises, or at least they don't bother you that much. So LSD and this ego dissolution opens you up. So you, you have more perceptions that normally would be um, below the level of awareness. And you also have this shifting away from this uh, egocentric approach and it often can be a very spiritual experience, you know, because you're connecting sort of with life as a whole
1: mm-hmm.
0: internal life and, and just and a lot of times you really can feel like there's a lot of interconnectedness right. that you don't normally see. So my my sense of it was that this sense of interconnectedness and the ability to open me up to emotions was both healthy for me and also had political implications. And by that, I mean, you know, I, I was very much educated on the Holocaust and stories of the Holocaust. In Skokie, there were a lot of Holocaust survivors. Right.
1: Uh, you
0: know, that's where the Nazis chose to march. Yep. The nazis chose to march in Skokie. Um, and the ACLU defended them, which I think was was the right thing. But in any case, I, I was really traumatized, you could say, by stories of the Holocaust, scared about uh, people, scared about the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was a young boy. Now it's the whole world could blow up. And right. And then then Vietnam, it's my own country doing this. So it was something where I felt that if we could feel the interconnectedness with others, and also with nature, that then it's going to be harder to dehumanize others. If you know and feel that we're all connected, at the then how can you say somebody who's different from you is less than human? How can you justify prejudice or genocide or right. things like that? And so I felt like in this crazy world, um, this is a tool that could be helpful. And
1: This was was all from your first experience with LSD? Yeah. And it was your freshman year? Yes. And I'm also curious if you could speak a little bit more about the fact that you're with a few friends, you're out in nature, and you're talking about a very internal experience. So were you socializing with the friends? Did they all experience such an internal experience?
0: Um, They did, yeah. But, you know, again, a lot of times we'd just be lying down and wouldn't be able to talk to each other. Gotcha. Right. Right. But you sort of and then near the end of the day, I remember this uh, vividly, is that um, Saturday they would Saturday evening, they would have steak at the school. So it's near the end of the day. I've been tripping most of the day. I'm still tripping a lot. And I decide, okay, this is steak. I better go try to get that. So I just remember this walk from the dorm to uh, the the student commons where the. food was, or the dining room was, and the, lo- the, the walk took forever. It, it was just like time was going more slowly, and, and the walk took forever, and I finally get there to uh, the dining room, and then everybody's you know standing in line, and I get my steak, and I get back to my uh, friends and my table, and I, I put the first bite of steak in my mouth, and I was like, oh my God, what do I do with it now? <laughs> I couldn't figure <laughs> it out, and it seemed so weird to be eating this meat and eating, you know, this whole process. So, you know, and I, I wasn't that hungry. The LSD can take away your hunger. So I, I had to leave. I couldn't even <laughs> stay. Um, but but I, I was left with a feeling that this was something that could be very useful. It was after the backlash. And I knew that psychedelic research had, was being shut down and that um, all over the world and Nixon was saying Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America, and there was going to be all sorts of um, repression and jail and all, all this kind of stuff. And it just felt very much like um, an effort to stop consciousness expansion so that certain people benefit from playing on people's fears and anxieties, as we've seen recently over the last four years. And right, right. and it just felt very much like. Here was a tool that could be useful politically, but I kept having difficult LSD experiences. Well,
1: what uh, year? What year was this that you were a freshman? Because Nixon shut down. He criminalized psychedelics in '70, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970, and so I started in um, in August of
1: 1971.
0: Oh, okay. Right, right after the backlash, and gotcha. I was. Um, I had a very difficult time with my LSD experiences, and uh, I also had a Masculine.
1: So af- it... after taking the LSD once and having this pretty big realization of the power of psychedelics and enjoying your LSD, it seems like your first time was a pretty good experience. But then you're saying, I mean, how freak, did you just start jumping into LSD daily then at that point? Or oh, how?
0: No, I never did it daily, but once every couple of weeks.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And more emotions would come up. I would get to this point where I f- would feel like I needed to let go, you know, that I still the, my ego was holding on. I didn't feel safe enough to do it. Um, and it would become a problem. Now, at the same time, I read a book from the Whole Earth Catalog and, and which had the picture of the Earth from space um, on the cover. And the book was about a fellow named John Lilly. And it was called Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. And it was about work that he did in the 50s and 60s, funded by the Navy. And he's the one that developed um, flotation tanks, which, which were originally called isolation tanks. Um, and then he got paid to do LSD in these isolation tanks and try to sort out how information was processed in his brain oh my so goodness. i i started reading this book and it was very interesting and uh, i'll just say that the picture of the earth from space that, that that's another way that people can get this sense that we're all connected but it's uh, a lot more expensive to be shot up into space than to <laughs> right. take a sea. so anyway i i had um isolation environments that friends and I would create that that we would try to put blindfolds on us and ear earphones and that with no sound and try to go deeper and deeper into our mind because we had the feeling in a way that the backlash that the psychedelic revolution of the 60s had failed, right? That it had um, gotten um, done a lot of good a lot of people had grown, but in the end, the system crushed it. And research was wiped out around the world. And I thought, well, you know, I want to fight back. Um, so I kept trying it, but my experiences were really difficult. So I went to the guidance counselor at college.
1: In and, In what way were they difficult?
0: Well, it just, I, I would get scared.
1: Okay. Did you and have I, any like really bad trips where yeah, you were freaking I, out?
0: Yeah, I, I did. I would freak out quietly though. And, and what I, type of... what? T- well, here's the image to, to give it. So I felt like... Um, well, you know that electricity um, flows, and one way you make light with all of our light bulbs is it flows and it stops into a light bulb, and then it heats things up, and that's how you get light. All right, so I had this idea that the psychic energy was like that, that, that if you can let the energy flow, it'll flow through you, but when you block it, you know, it heats up. So I I had this image of my brain being like um, an obstruction to the flow of mental energy. And I started thinking that my brain was melting. And I had this nasal drip that I confused with my brain coming out of my nose. Wow. And it was, you know, and part of me is like, that probably isn't really happening. But part of me was like scared it might be happening. So that was my, you know, worst trip that I was resisting, uh-huh. The energy, the psychic energy, and that resistance was creating heat. It wasn't creating light inside my brain. It was creating heat, and it was uh, causing my brain to melt.
1: So, And was that I, one experience, or was that like a common thread of some of your bad trips?
0: Um, that was just one. Okay. That was just one experience. So, um, but other bad trips were more like, I, I need to let go, but I just can't. I'm scared. I would hold on.
1: You know, so that, emot- that, in my mind, doesn't sound like a bad trip I've heard about. I mean, I, I hear about, you know, like people all of a sudden and maybe these are some of the myths and exaggerations, but like, you know, the like a, an all out hallucination of the wall suddenly caving in around them and really being scared, like outright for their life.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would say my brain melting was more like that, right. but, but no, I didn't have that outer stuff. It was more like inner flaws gotcha inner problem so I went to the guidance counselor at college and I said um, I need help with my LSD trips and <laughs> the guidance counselor took me seriously and he said it's important what you're doing it, it is um, important to get us better spiritual grounding um, I, I also just will add that um, my bar mitzvah was a big disappointment to me because I thought that it would be um, spiritual and that it would be transformative, that somehow or other I would turn into an adult or a, you know, boy to man kind of thing. Right. Right. And and none of that happened. And when I first started taking LSD, I had the thought, this is what my bar mitzvah should have been. (laughs) Right. This is generating those kind of questions, those existential questions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that. But so this counselor, you go to see a counselor and I want to make sure I understand. So you've now been exploring with lsd you had a great first trip but you've had multiple it sounds like bad trips but you want to continue your path of taking them like you feel passionate about enough about them that you the I, like i would think the bad trips would be like screw this man my, i feel like my brain is melting i i don't want to deal with psychedelics this is scary but you didn't do that
0: no i felt the world was scarier
1: meaning oh, okay. that
0: we've got a crazy world the germans you know killed a bunch of Jews, that there's massive prejudice the world could blow up um, with nuclear weapons. So I felt like the the path to deeper spiritual awareness or consciousness, that that was the salvation.
1: Right. Like LSD was the Messiah.
0: Well, LSD <laughs> was a tool that could bring about experiences that could be helpful. Right. So right. I, I didn't think LSD was the Messiah, but I did think that LSD was a gift. Yeah. Um, and, and, Albert, and you
1: wanted to make sure it was working for you, which brought yeah. you to the counselor.
0: Yeah. And Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD, talked about it as being invented right around the time that the splitting of the atom took place. Okay. And he actually thought that, um, you know, Albert Einstein talked said that the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our way of thinking. And hence, we drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. Wow. So Einstein is saying we need a new way of thinking. And I think that means a more spiritual, inclusive way. Right. So I I felt that this world was in danger. Um, I was about to potentially be arrested to go to jail, that it was people were murdering each other all over the place and that there was this need to break through to a deeper spirituality and that that's why I continued the LSD experiences. And so when I go to the guidance counselor and say, help me, um, he took me seriously, but then he gave me a book to read, and this was a book that changed my life. Um, it was a book called, um, it was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research, and it was by a Dr. Stanislav Grof. Right. And he's the world's leading LSD researcher. He's about to turn 90. Um, you know, it was just really a, a phenomenal book and, and it opened my eyes to the, the research that had been done with LSD, which I didn't really know. I knew about sort of counterculture use of LSD and the Grateful Dead and, you know, Timothy Leary and all this, but I didn't really know about all of the research that was done. So this book opened my eyes to the incredible research that had done with LSD in the treatment of alcoholism, LSD in the treatment of heroin addiction, LSD in the treatment of um people with cancer who were scared of dying and which was well, all
1: some of the research prior to the clampdown on on criminalizing yeah. Yeah.
0: them yeah right right exactly from all over the world so um so this book felt like it looked from a scientific lens at consciousness, at spirituality, at the realms of the human unconscious, but it had a reality check, which was therapy. do these experiences help people to cope with life better to cope with their own depression could, could this be a tool for the treatment of depression and the treatment of um, substance abuse and and the answer was yes, it could be when supported in the right way with proper preparation, proper support during and proper integration after. So this book put it all together for me and the amazing another amazing part was that the book was not actually published till 1975 but this was in 1972 and my guidance counselor had a manuscript copy of it and had Stan's address and (laughs) that is
1: incredible.
0: So I wrote a letter to Stan Groff and I said, this is so interesting. I'm thinking I want to devote my life to psychedelic research, but I need to, um, you know, do my own therapy as well. And I'd like to study this. Um, and what suggestions do you have for me? So, I didn't know that he would write me back. He's MD, PhD at Johns Hopkins, big, right. but he got my letter and he wrote me back. That's amazing. Yeah. And he told me that he was giving a workshop that summer in California. And so I decided that um, I would go to that. And I. so then I went to my parents who, you know, in one of the most important lessons of love that I've ever learned I went to my parents, and I said, I want to drop out of college, I want to study LSD, and I want you to pay for it. Wow. (laughs) And um, at the end, it took them a couple months, but they said yes. And my dad said, I think it's a big mistake you're making. You know, they weren't into drugs, as I said. I think it's a big mistake, but we think you're a stubborn guy, and if you... Um, don't get help from us. It's going to take you longer to realize it's a mistake. And then you're not going to want to admit it because, you know, your parents will have been right and you'll been wrong. So we're going to help you to realize your mistake sooner. Oh my goodness. And and then they said that there's a tiny fraction of doubt. Maybe I do know what I need to do. Right. That was the other part of it. So there's this incredible sense of um, sort of, Support for what I wanted to do. It was just beautiful, incredible. and uh, I, I just am so grateful. And so I did do that workshop with um, Stan the summer of '72. I did uh, primal therapy, I did an encounter group, month-long encounter group up in the mountains, of California. I did everything as intense as I could, but in the end, I was not enlightened. I didn't feel like I was quote enlightened. Right. And, and I was, and I'd done everything the most effective, the most extreme, the most powerful that I could, that I knew of. So I was kind of lost, and I went home, and um, lived at home. I'm the oldest of four kids, so it was a bit difficult for my parents because here I am a dropout, bad example for my siblings. <laughs> right. And um, but I finally got this idea that my, you know, parents had built this house that I needed to build something. That if I could get grounded in the world, I could you know, sort of figure out what to do. And so, so were I,
1: you were you essentially saying I'm leaving this whole idea and this passion of psychedelics and I'm looking for something different?
0: No, 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 okay. not. At
1: all.
0: no. It was this is what I'm going to do, but I need to prepare myself.
1: Gotcha. I
0: need to get grounded. And so the the school, it did have this Olympic size swimming pool, but it didn't have much in the way of athletic facilities. And I had been a um, high school champion of handball at Trier, And so I said to my dad and to the school, I'd like to build a handball court. Wow. It's very simple because it's concrete block one on top of the other. The skill comes in, if you're a Mason, the skill comes in, in how fast you can go and also how parallel you can get things. But I figured I could, um, I could work slowly and carefully and I could do it and I could just pile one block on top of the other. It's 20 foot long. Uh, 20 foot wide, 40 foot long, 20 foot high. So it's a lot of block. And um, my parents agreed that they would pay for the materials, which are a couple thousand dollars, and they would support me to go back to school, um, which I did in 73. And then I started um, wanting to exercise my mind. And then I got a girlfriend and her father taught contractors how to pass the contractor's exam. So I asked him if I could take the test and uh, take his course for free, which he then permitted me to do. And, um, I got my license. So I was the youngest and dumbest contractor in Florida (laughs) and I I built houses, uh, custom and spec homes for 10 years. And then in 82, I felt ready to go back to college.
1: And this whole time though. So for 10 years of, of doing the construction work, you, you have LSD and psychedelics on your mind the whole time thinking about how you'll be able to get it back into that in the future.
0: Yeah. And every once in a while I would, I would trip. And it would be like it would get easier and easier because I was getting more and more mature. Right. And I was getting able to be more emotional. I finally had a girlfriend and and could experience a lot of things that I hadn't experienced before.
1: Better experiences, less bad trips.
0: Yeah. And and so um, when I started back in school in 82 at New College, the same place I dropped out 10 years before, um, the very first semester... Stan groff was offering a month-long workshop at esalen in big sur california with his wife christina and it was on the mystical quest it was a month long on the mystical quest and i thought what i would do uh-huh. is i would go back to be with stan and i would develop a curriculum of what i needed to do to become a lsd psychedelic therapist because at the time there weren't real courses for that because it was still suppressed all over the world but i right. thought i'm going to do this and so I went to Esalen and in my first month in school, getting credit for off campus study, while I was there, this woman, Debbie Harlow, comes by and she said uh, she wasn't in the workshop, but she came by Esalen. She stayed there. and She said there's a new drug and it's called Adam and it helps you um, feel love and it helps you feel connected to people and it makes you a better listener and it's it's really good for communicating with people. And um, I thought, hmm, you know, that doesn't sound all that interesting because I feel like I'm in love. I feel like, um, you know, I've learned a lot. I, I feel I can listen well. And and I saw a group of people doing MDMA, sitting in a circle, and they were just talking to each other. And I thought, well, that's not very profound. You know, you take a bunch of LSD and you have these hours where you can't even talk. Right. You know, you, you move into nonverbal processing. And so... Um, So I I like to say that I was uh, stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. (laughs) (laughs) And I ended up uh, it was called Adam. But what I learned also is that it had been used therapeutically by around half a million people at this point. It was quiet. It was legal, but it was kept quiet so that it wouldn't be criminalized because this was again, Ronald Reagan now and Nancy Reagan and just say no. No. But it had escaped from therapeutic circles and had become ecstasy.
1: Right. But it was and, and it was still legal. And it was still legal. Okay, yeah. So wow. I
0: thought, here it is. I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash. Right. I about LSD after the backlash. And so that's where I started getting involved in um, starting another nonprofit before MAPS to make uh, MDMA. Uh, well, the, the nonprofit before MAPS was to fight what we thought would be the eventual DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, crackdown. Because while it was legal, we could introduce it to a lot of people who wouldn't do an illegal drug, but would try a legal drug.
1: Right, right.
0: We introduced it to Lester Grinspoon, who was a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. Um, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Shlomo Karlbach was his, uh, Shlomo Karlbach, they're Hasidic, but modern Orthodox, and Shlomo... Um, very emotional people, but the Zalman, um had done LSD with Timothy Leary. Um, and so we introduced MDMA to Zalman and to uh, a Roman Catholic monk, Brother David Steindl who used it in half doses to help meditation in the monastery. Wow. Various people that I had met along the way. And it was um, amazing. So once the crackdown came, I went to Washington, and we asked for a hearing. Um, we had pro bono lawyers. We so, this whole when
1: community. when was MDMA? MDMA, when did that become criminalized? Then,
0: nineteen eighty-five.
1: Okay, so, so well after LSD. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. It, it was uh, eighty-four is when the DEA moved to criminalize it. We slowed them down, but they criminalized it in eighty-five. Okay, and. They the judge agreed with us that it should be a medicine and should be schedule three and therapists and psychiatrists could use it. But the DEA ignored the recommendation, rejected the recommendation and put it in schedule one where it's no medical use. So I ended up being um, very much um, frustrated. And I realized that the only way to bring it back was going to be through the FDA. As uh, tried to make it into a medicine, and so in '86 is when I started Maps as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company to focus on MDMA and psychedelics. Fortunately, I did not know that no drug had ever been made into a medicine by a nonprofit organization at the time. That since has changed, and that that did happen in 1999 was the first drug, and it was the Rockefellers, the Buffets, and the Pritzkers, um, and it was. Are uh, you 46, the abortion pill? OK, that, similarly, controversial drug abandoned by pharma. And um, so um, because we're running out of time, because unfortunately, I have something else. I'll just say that. So 1986 is when I started MAPS. Now, that's 35 years ago. We've raised over a hundred million dollars in donations. And we are now in phase three which is the final stage of research to make a drug into a medicine for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. We've completed our first of two phase three studies, and it was very successful. FDA declared MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD a breakthrough therapy, which is the most important designation you get from the FDA. And they've also declared psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression a breakthrough And they've declared psilocybin for major depressive disorder a breakthrough therapy. There's two different companies, one working on a a nonprofit working on major depression disorder and a for-profit working on treatment-resistant depression. And they're into the phase two studies, and they've got a lot of promising data about um, LSD, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, about psilocybin for depression. So I, I think that what we are about to see over the next uh, five years is going to be FDA approval for prescription use of psychedelics. There will eventually be thousands and thousands of psychedelic clinics. They won't be like an MDMA clinic or a ketamine clinic. The therapists all want to be cross-trained in all the different drugs. So what we're talking about is a new field of medicine called psychedelic therapy. And you have a whole bunch of tools, different kind of psychedelics for different purposes, and the therapists will be cross-trained and it will only be legal under supervision in clinic settings where people who've been specially trained in the therapy that was used to get them approved. Right. So we think by 2022, 2023, we should have um, FDA approval. We think uh, a year or two after that will be uh, psilocybin get approved. And we already have ketamine. We think more and more ketamine is gonna be used more with therapy than just as a pharmacological agent. And so I think for those people that have depression, um, one of the main messages is that there is hope. There are tools coming that are going to be very effective. And right now they're mostly only available legally, um, in research settings, Right, right. but, but there is more drug policy reform. So there is a bunch of, um, like Oregon, the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative, uh, they're trying to make state legal uh, therapy, not just for people with a diagnosis, but for people for personal growth. That's so, helping as well.
1: Yeah, and you're talking about for healthy people.
0: Yes, yes, right. for, for personal growth.
1: For what people. What was it that got you the breakthrough designation? I mean, it must have been the data that you were able to show.
0: Yeah, it was the phase two data. Uh-huh. So, you know, we spent, well, to telegraph all these 35 years into a very short moment. Um, From 1986, when I started MAPS, we had five protocols rejected, and it wasn't until 1992 that we got the first study approved. In 1990, the FDA division that reviews psychedelics switched, and a new group took over, and they decided 20 years of suppression has been enough, and we're going to try to see about um, letting scientists take a look at psychedelics again. In 1990, they approved a fellow named Rick Strassman, a doctor, to do work with DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. But he was looking at it in a negative way, like maybe DMT in your brain, it's the only endogenous psychedelic, maybe it's related to schizophrenia or something. And so um, there was this uh, sort of negative frame. In 1992, we got the first permission to do a phase one dose response safety study, and At that point, that took us about four or five years. And then in 1999, we started the first MDMA PTSD study in Spain. And then we started working in the U.S. in in 2000. And from from that till 2016, we did um, a series of phase two studies in Israel, Switzerland, Canada and the United States. And that's where we generated the data that then we presented to FDA for what's called an end of phase two meeting. And we got permission to go to phase three and then they declared it a breakthrough therapy.
1: And that was for PTSD in particular? Yes. Okay. So are you able to share with us uh, how it is that MDMA works and how it differs from LSD, psilocybin and the others?
0: Um, I can. Yeah. It's fundamentally different. So there's the classic psychedelics are more about ego dissolving. Um, They, Weaken activity in what's called the default mode network of your brain. It's sort of your resting state, eco state, where you're scanning the universe, the, you know, the world around you for your what's relevant to you. And, you know, Abraham Maslow in humanistic psychology has talked about the hierarchy of needs, you know, survival needs, belonging needs, esteem needs and self-actualization. Um, so you're kind of scanning the universe for what's relevant to you. But you're organized by, you know, this uh, default mode network, the sort of ego structures in your brain and the classic psychedelics weaken those structures. So you get a flood of information. You're not seeing things from your own individual perspective. You can see things from a more spiritual, universal, connected perspective.
1: And I've heard that it makes more connections in the brain with areas that don't normally connect.
0: Yes. Yeah. And not only that, but it can promote uh, new neural connections as well. Right. So what MDMA does is that it has um, a different effect. It reduces activity in the amygdala, which is the fear processing part of the brain, so that you end up being able to have fearful memories or, or anxiety type things, or or even um, it's great for couples therapy. You know, you can be a better listener. And also it Um, stimulates what's called oxytocin, the hormone of nursing mothers of love connection. It's, um, you know, the love hormone, oxytocin. So that produces self-love and love for others and a sense of self-acceptance and openness to the world. So MDMA doesn't have the visuals that you would get in the same way with psychedelics, which got them called hallucinogens. Um, You can can have uh, visualizations, but it's it's less, and you're you're not confused by them in the same way um, that you could be confused with LSD. And it is um, the gentlest of all the psychedelics. It's the it's only it's a very subtle shift, but it's incredibly profound. And that's why when I saw people sitting in a circle talking to each other, I missed the point of how profound what it was doing to them, the way they were able to speak from their hearts and to listen better and to have that fear reduced. So it it ended up, though, that MDMA is ideal for PTSD. Uh, So MDMA, PTSD, if you have PTSD, um, you have hyperactive amygdala, you have your prefrontal cortex, where you think logically has got reduced activity, and also um, your hippocampus, where you put memories into long-term storage, there's not as much activity. So MDMA increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. So you can think more logically, decreases activity in the amygdala, the fear processing, but then increases connectivity between the hippocampus and the amygdala. So you can put these traumatic memories that never were fully processed into the past.
1: That makes a ton of sense for how MDMA would support PTSD. What about in the case of depression?
0: Well, it, it's similar that that because um, you don't
1: typically have an overactive amygdala, do you, during depression?
0: No, but but you get into these patterns, and sort of these patterned um, develop. So what we show is a lot of most people that have PTSD also have depression, and PTSD goes down and depression goes down. So we've never done a study with people who are depressed but not PTSD. That's what's coming up. That's one of the things we do. But there have been studies with psilocybin um, and uh, for depression and anxiety, LSD for depression and anxiety. So I think MDMA, by changing the normal pattern of your processing and by helping people to get out of a lot of, uh, you know, depression, you could speak to this, you know, there's a lot of negative thoughts in your mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, So the MDMA quiets that and you can like breathe and you can see things in a different way and it the oxytocin some neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins have shown this that the in mice that the oxytocin stimulated by MDMA produces a uh, neurotogenesis which means new neural connections in prosocial areas of the brain so you are rewiring your brain same is true with psilocybin or LSD so it's very um, it can be very effective for depression and Um, not everyone, but a lot of people who have depression have had, um, challenging situations, maybe not to the level of PTSD, but, but you can process them. You can look at what, but it's also, what is depressing you? What, what is making you, um, low energy or, you know, the MDMA, I think can be very helpful for depression, but we've not yet studied that directly.
1: Well, and there are different theories about what depression is caused from, right? And yeah. Um, yeah. which really complicates it, I would think. Um, well,
0: in the sense that when when we talk about SSRIs, you know, it's about serotonin, low serotonin linked to depression, and MDMA stimulates serotonin. Right. Um, if, I, I do have to say goodbye uh, only because okay. I got another meeting at nine, and um, I've been okay. working since nine, nine or eight this morning. Okay. Okay. All right. But but I'm sorry to cut it off but um it's been a really delight to talk with you
1: yeah well thank you thank you for your time i was gonna um hit you up on the movie prescription x and ask you if you had ever heard of that before (laughs) and uh and uh yeah just some more about the research process and so forth because it sounds very similar to lsd but um but i will let
0: you go And I would refer to maps.org, M-A-P-S, maps.org is the website that has an enormous amount of information.
1: All right. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Rick. Terrific, Alan. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 So there you have it, my interview with Rick Doblin. Uh, Some of you may have caught uh, my uh, frustration when Dr. Doblin stated that uh, because we were running out of time, uh, was how he started one of his questions near the end of the interview, and uh, so yes, I was frustrated, and uh, I actually take ownership for that. I, uh, as an interviewer, I'm always trying to grow and do a better job of interviewing guests, and clearly, I should have nailed down how much time uh, Rick had for the interview, um, I, we did get into some very personal stories that were incredible, and I'm not sorry that we did that, yet if I knew about the limited timeline, I may have tried to jump into the conversation around MDMA and his research and his organization much sooner than what I did. Um, some of the questions that I was really excited to ask him about was, uh, one, I wanted to hear more about the negative possible negative side effects of MDMA. Um, I know there is some talk of that and whether or not he's seen that in the research. I wanted to really get into a bit more about uh, how the LSD, psilocybin, and MDMA research um, processes differ, um, not just the drugs themselves, but, for example, uh, do the set and setting align with one another, um, or do they change that? It does it look different for MDMA um the number of sessions that they conduct for the MDMA research and how many of the sessions include uh giving the research MDMA and how many are strictly therapy and does the therapy differ Um, that is given along in the research for the three different types of psychedelics. Also curious uh, how the screening process went and whether or not they're going to pursue um, studies related to uh, healthy people receiving MDMA um, and as well as LSD and psilocybin. Uh, Rick just has so much knowledge around all of those pieces. Um, I, I certainly wanted to ask him, uh, more about MAPS, his organization. And one of their values that stood out to me was that they, they take uh, risks and learn from their mistakes. And I, I was really curious to, to ask him about what were some mistakes that they made and lessons that were learned. And finally, uh, I did kind of allude to it, but uh, he, uh, there is a film being produced called Prescription X I think it is still in production, and it is a film all about uh, Rick himself and his story. Uh, It is called Prescription X, and you can find out more information at prescriptionx.com. Also, as Rick had mentioned, make sure you check out maps.org for more uh, information on maps and the incredible work that Rick and his team are doing along research. Uh, of mdma and ptsd and hopefully uh, soon in the future mdma and uh, its use as a medication for depression as well all right well thank you again for listening to the depression files if you have a chance it would be great uh, if you could do subscribe and give a review and rating thank you again Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.